Welcome back, guys. This is the 39th episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. Next up, it's the second installment of our talks about mental health with producer and DJ Object Blue. Although she has long been a music obsessive and is also a trained pianist, London-based Object Blue avoided making music for years, only getting her start during her early 20s when a friend pushed her to remix one of his tracks. Since then, she's quickly established herself as a producer and a live performer to be reckoned with, finding solace in the making and playing of music. She has often been outspoken about battling with depression since she was a teenager, and has talked openly about how dark thoughts can interfere with her work. In this conversation, we delve into imposter syndrome, mental health and creativity, and the power of music as a healing force. Thank you so much for speaking with me today and also for being so open to discussing mental health as a topic. Mm-hmm. No problem. I want to start with something that you told Borscht magazine a few years ago. You called music your savior and you said that you have sort of unconditional faith in it, that it's one of the things you're always sure of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder in the time that's passed between now and that interview, is that still true for you? Yeah, it is. I don't think that would ever change about my life. The only things I ever have dealt in are, like, my relationship to music or, like, whether I'm able to communicate with this musical side of myself well enough. But my faith in music itself never wavers. So when you say something like music is a savior for you, like, when was the last time that music saved you in that way? Well, I guess on Friday playing a show like that um I mean we like TSV and I played fantastically together but it was also the joy of the crowd their commitment to listening and experiencing this show we put together like a performance like that always it like answers all my questions like doubts you know um uncertainty about the future being annoyed at people in the music industry you know like looking at my bank account like it just like just bulldozes over all of these feelings of doubt and pain and uncertainty and it makes me feel oh I know exactly where I am in my life and I want to be here you're talking about your performance at Unsound, right? Yeah, so uh, for the 2021 Unsound edition, uh, Deep Authentic, um, TSVI and I were invited to back-to-back for two and a half hours at 2 a.m. And um, Guglielmo and I have become been friends and making music together uh, as, a, as, our, as our side project for two years now, two and a half years. We put out an EP called Hyperesthesia on Nervous Horizon in the summer of 2020. It was supposed to be this, you know, festival grenade tracks. And of course, like, it did well. Like, a lot of people, we got great feedback for the EP, but obviously nobody was playing it out loud. Um... And we went through this, you know, isolating, frustrating year um, where, like, both of us felt so empty without this um, weekly, weekly, like, immersive experience of doing what we love and making a living out of that. Um, And also 
at the beginning of 2020, Sophie passed away so suddenly and tragically. And I know so many musicians around me and listeners around me, myself included, were devastated with no proper way to mourn. And so when we got the offer to play back to back for Unsound, and it was our second time going on sound, uh, going back to back. The first time was a month ago in Bristol, and it was only one hour, but it went really well. And I was, we knew it would be good. Um, and I knew that at Unsound this year, many of Sophie's loved ones were attending or performing. And it's, you know, the biggest festival um, that had connection to Sophie, that had personal friends and professional collaborators to Sophie. And so I checked with um, somebody who was close to Sophie, who was at that festival, asking, do you think um, it would be okay for me to play some Sophie tracks? Because if any of you are in the crowd and you would be upset to hear her music, like, obviously I won't. And uh, they said, we love to hear our angel blasted through the speakers play away. So I did. I played Bip and people were crying. I almost cried. And then when later I played Immaterial, I couldn't help myself and I just got up on the stage and I sang and danced. And then Guglielmo made sure I didn't miss my transition. He like cued a loop on the third deck just in case. So that, that was like a very emotional highlight and like a very emotional and direct way to, you know, go through this like grief we experienced um, as a music community, the passing of such a visionary, influential artist so young. Um, and the rest of the two and a half hours were just full of like people were letting so loose, people were really happy to hear this kind of music on a big sound system again. Um, and yeah, it just made me think like, oh, thank God I didn't, you know, throw the towel in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I couldn't because I'm I'm really just like. I'm not comparably good at anything other than music, so I don't think I would have like made a career change or anything. Um, but it did make me think, like, yes, this is exactly what I want to be doing with my life. Um, and I think this is the best way I can like serve my community, people around me, or even strangers. This is probably the most effective method I have right now to to give something worthwhile to them. It's so nice to be able to play music out again, especially when you're going through this loss and being able to play their tracks and kind of let them live on through the music a little bit. It's something I actually wasn't thinking about at all when I um, when I was writing my questions for today's conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that that set sort of provided you with this respite and um, sort of helped you in your grieving process. Like, do you hope that, or do you think that your music provides that same kind of hope for people who are struggling with their own emotions, whether that's loss or something else? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I hope so. I don't plan for that to happen. Mm, I always said that, I'm not really expressing my emotions through my music Mm, because for me, sound is a medium that stands on its own. It doesn't have to have um, language or thought-based narrative for it to be impactful. 
Um, and besides, from day one, I like people's perception of my music and my perception of my music never seemed to be congruent. Um, you know, like my 30p figure beside me is like an ode to love. And I see, you know, entire choreography teams and production teams make a visual or a dance piece based on those tracks about like anxiety and addiction and grief so like for me it's very saccharine you know orchestra playing on venetian waters with by the candlelight but like <laughs> some people perceive it as this like dark cold floor of a rehab center you know <laughs> So I never meant for my music to provide some emotional guidance or catharsis, but if it does, that that's very, that's more than I could ask for, and I'm very happy to hear it. I guess what you were saying about how it's not necessarily emotional for you, um, I guess you can't really control the emotions that other people hear when they're listening to your music, so it can yeah. kind of be anything, and I guess that's like the good part about music yeah absolutely I noticed that people really want to ascribe a narrative to music perhaps because it's easier to write about and I'm not trying to disrespect music journalists I understand I understand um writing in language about thoughts emotions language is easier than writing about music mm. using language but to me it's a bit of a blind spot because music is where I express things I can't in language um, music is something I, I, I use music to express something I can't convey through narration storylines so when people say you know, for example, I dedicated my first EP to women on the dance floor. And, you know, I wrote this EP and then when before I put it up, I was like, this is for the women out there. And then everyone, not everyone, but so many people jumped to, she wrote this feminist, you know, polemic, mm -hmm. but through Bandcamp. And I was like, well it's not really what it's about it's just me making music because I love music mm -hmm. and and then in the end I might have dedicated to women but like that's not how I write music I don't think today I'm going to make five tracks about feminism mm -hmm. and sit down and do it I'm sure a lot of people do and um I'm sure a lot of people like starting with a narration and um, and indeed, I do enjoy music like that very much, but that's not how I make it. But it's something people never seem to understand or never seem to want to understand because I say this in every interview, but it never stops. <laughs> I understand it's much easier to be like, this is an album about a breakup mm -hmm. and this first song is about the morning, you know, we broke up and the second song is about getting back together. I know it's so much easier to conceptualize and hold on to your memory because I guess that's how we have been wired and raised. Um, I always notice that we, like as a civilization, we don't have to pay that much attention to music, like to sound. People might complain about the decor or the ambience or the food or the people at the restaurant but like not many places mention what was playing on the speakers even though that really impacts my eating experience <laughs> mm -hmm. and I think this this um audio being you know left behind in our culture a little bit um even reflects in the, within the music industry but but narrative is not that important in my creative process and what about as a listener? Personally, for me, for example, I rely on music a lot these days when I'm trying to like regulate my emotions. Like I'm in therapy and something my therapist and I talk about a lot is like 
trying to get my reaction to match the situation. So like working on not catastrophizing things, for example. Um, And music really helps Mm -hmm. with that. Like it will calm me down Mm -hmm. or bring me back up or ground me in a certain way. Um, Mm -hmm. So does that resonate with you at all as as a listener? Yeah, it does. I understand exactly what you mean about music bringing you up or catalyzing. Like I notice that um, my moods are better if I start the day listening to like really heavy techno. Maybe like maybe just wakes me up or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, and I'm the kind of person who listens to like one EP over and over again for weeks. Um, and uh, that really gets me through the day. I'm a very emotional person. Um, I have lots of mood swings. And for me, one is having a book that I'm reading at the moment with me at all times. And two is like having my headphones with me at all times. Mm. Those are like, those provide a constant. And I also don't mind listening to sad music when I'm sad because it doesn't make me sadder. It makes me kind of, I kind of start seeing myself as like a protagonist of a soap opera or something. And there is this music playing. I can really sink into it. And I believe um, the only way to get through pain is to lean into it. So so I guess music makes me, helps me in those times to just feel sadness without thinking, oh my God, I'm not depressed. I'm just a cunt, like, which is something <laughs> I think, which is one of the biggest pitfalls of depression, I think. Like, yeah. you're not depressed. You're just a fucking asshole. You know, <laughs> it's so awful. I um, know exactly what you mean. But the music can help drown out these thoughts i think in that moment music can help you help me distill there's this like sadness at the core and i can't get to the core because all the layers around it is like fuck you you're a cunt like um this is so stupid you're wasting so much time uh look at all these privileges you have and you still feel this way and music helps drown out all the unimportant, untrue things around it. And I get to the core and I sit at the core, which is sadness by myself, which is how I get through it. That's, that's nice. Not many things can do that. So I read that when you were younger, sound really fascinated you, but you really thought of music as more of kind of a playmate. Um, so can you tell me a bit about that and like how you were interacting with music as a young person? I really like, I just don't remember my first feelings about music. It was just always there as soon as, like, as, as far back as I can remember. Music was always a big part of my life. Um, And I didn't grow up in a musical family. My parents wouldn't put music on at home or anything. But we did have a piano. um, And my sister had to take piano lessons that she didn't enjoy. And 
she doesn't play anymore. Um, but I remember I would climb onto the stool and play the piano and ask my mom that I want to go to piano lessons as well. Um, and then my mom started taking me to the the neighborhood piano class. And apparently, I don't remember this, but apparently they said, this is do, re, mi, on the front of a keyboard. And today we're going to play these three notes. And I played all three of them at once. Like, duh. and then they were like, no, you have to play it once at a time. And I was like, why? Um, so I guess that was like an early sign of me, like my, my approach to music making. I really liked to copy songs I heard by ear. I thought that was really fun. I, when I was a tiny kid, I watched this film. I think it's called like 1919 or something. Um, Tim Roth plays this orphan who grew up on a ship and then he turns out to be a musical genius. And then he, like, there's a lot of scenes where he's improvising as a child. And then I was like, oh, I want to be able to improvise like that. So when I was a child, I had this this theme inside the the film. And I just kept adding my own spin of it. And I had that piece for like three or four years. Like I always had a few pieces that I would keep and like make things around it and change it. So if I learned new harmonies, I would keep this theme but put these new harmonies around it um but I was never a good instrumentalist I think my hand-eye coordination is just not good enough to become as professional pianist and like now I can say well that's fine like being a pianist is not the only way you can make music but I didn't know that at the time so it felt like a death sentence to me I was so upset um, when I realized that I wasn't actually just, I just wasn't that good at piano. And <laughs> when, when I could, when I was a child, the fact that I could improvise made everyone treat me like a prodigy. And I thought I was. And when I realized I was not a prodigy, nor am I good at the piano, nor did I not know any other way to express my musicality, I I thought it was a dead end. Mm. I felt so devastated and I was so jealous of people who got good piano tuition since they were young, um, that they were going to music school. And I always had this awful, awful feeling of shame that actually, like, I could have been a great pianist. I could have been a great musician, but I missed my chance. Um, And obviously this, like, fetishization of, like, child prodigy and, you know being a visionary at age 18 like really doesn't help and so I spent like 10 seething years after age 13 being really upset envious ashamed and then I remember dating a few musicians and like I was so proud that I was like that somebody I was dating was so talented but it also made me want to die like Oh, I'm so shit compared to them, you know. Um, so I was this like really weirdo, like who talked about music all the time, who was obsessed with music, who listened to a lot of music but never made any. And if you asked her to make it, she'd like start crying. You know? <laughs> um, and then when I was twenty three, uh, twenty three, twenty four, I just like exploded, and I was like. I'm going to try to make music and I downloaded Ableton and then and that was yeah that was a that 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 saved my life for sure. And so how did you actually make that leap going from listener to music maker like what sort of jump did you have to do within your own head like how did you kind of push yourself to do, to do that next step? So when I was 22 I was applying to graduate school because uh, I did my bachelor's in English Lit, and I, I really loved it. Um, but then I also realized I am never going to be an academic. But I was applying to grad school because at that time I had a boyfriend who was 
American and the only way I could see us being together is if I moved to America. <laughs> um, and the only way I could see me moving to America is to go to grad school because I'm not going to get a job as an English lit graduate. And, uh, and it felt so wrong. I even took the GRE and I was, you know, filling out like my second graduate school application in the library near Bloomsbury Square in London. Um, and I just called my friend and I said, like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't know why I'm trying to go to grad school. And she was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I just want to make music. That's all I've wanted. Like, it's mm. the only thing I really care about at this point. Enough to, like, dump my boyfriend, you know? <laughs> um, and I was like, you understand, you're a musician. And he didn't seem to understand, but I to me it was so clear. Like, I could either move my move to across the Atlantic Ocean to be with you, or I could do music. Imagine if I took the option one mm. I would probably resent him for the rest of my life Definitely. you know um it took so long to come to that sort of realization and then I went and bought a USB controller Akai MPK mini because I thought that's what you had to have and I actually really never used it I, <laughs> I sold it like last year but when you bought the controller you got a 50 pound voucher on Ableton so I bought Ableton Suite uh, discounted from 80 pounds with the voucher and then one of my closest friends I met I made online he was a really great producer and he made me five minute tutorial videos what's EQ what's drum programming mm. you know what are some of my favorite Ableton synths um and that's how I started. He asked me to remix a track for his EP. And I said, I can't believe you're asking me. I don't even know how to produce. Like, you're taking a risk uh, just because we're friends. And he was like, well, we've been talking about music every day for the past year since we started talking. It's clear to me that you can do it. Um, and when I sent him this remix, I was panicked and I sent him like 10 paragraphs about how like I totally understand if he doesn't want to use it and like you know like how did I think I could remix somebody like you like you're like a genius and blah, blah. and then he was like shut up like shut the <laughs> fuck up like firstly no one's gonna listen to my EP um and secondly like it's good like it's it just is good um so don't worry about him hmm. and then I like continued teaching myself Ableton um and it was just so clear that unlike writing an essay on literary analysis making music in Ableton was just so much more fulfilling and painless even if things were difficult or didn't go the right way, it just wasn't as painful as everything else mm. I'd tried in my life. So it was clear and I never looked back after that. And so how do you think back about the kind of fear and anxiety that you used to have specifically about not being good enough? Like, do you think that that has impacted the kind of artist that you are today or the way that you perceive your own artistic ability like do you still sometimes think like that mm, I don't really think like that anymore um because I think if you make art and especially experimental art um it's really important to believe in your own artistic vision so if I'm going to question my artistic vision like, it better be because I think, oh, I can do better than this, not because I'm just thinking, mm, I'm not that good at this. Like, yeah. there's no point. And if I'm going to question myself like that, I might as well just listen to other people's music and have fun. Hmm. 
um, this fear I had, and people think, people always say, how did you break out of this fear? How did you, how do you get through a writer's block? And they expect me to say, oh, you do these writing exercises or you buy the synth. But it's not that. For me, it was a lot deeper and, you know, psychoanalytic. Like, it was, I had to confront a lot of my fears about work, um, work, self-worth, quantifying my self-worth, like, being seen as intelligent, you know, stuff like this. Um... I couldn't have done it without, you know, seven years of therapy. And now, I just try not to think that hard about music. Because for me, good art, including music, is does it move me? That is the most important question. It's often the only question I need asked. Mm. And... And it's a it's a question you can only answer based on feeling. You can't, you know, logic your way around it. I really like what you said about is it's not about not being good enough. It's just about how can I be better than the, the previous thing that I did. Like how can I grow? And I wonder, um, yeah. So is that how you're measuring? Am I good enough these days? Like is it just that your music making process is more about? wanting to do something that you love, period. Yeah, but, you know, I I wouldn't say how can I be better because this EP needs to be better than the last EP. It's more that, like, how can I better do what I wanted to do Mm. now? So the last EP I made is great because I did what I needed to do at that moment. And that was the most effective way to put down the sounds I wanted to put down in that moment. The reason why I would need to improve now is not because that my last EP no longer makes the cut. It's because I want to make something different now. Mm. So it's not a linear... Because if if I made music like that, I would just tell people to not listen to any of my releases that's older than a year. And there, there's... No, I don't think that. I think my first EP is great in its own way. And it's not necessarily better or worse than my second or third EP. Um, like right now, I've been focusing on learning uh, the reactor in native instruments because... I had a hunch that it would really help me write the material that I'm interested in now. Um, Not because my last EP wasn't good enough because I didn't use Reactor, you know? It's it's not linear. I feel more like I'm like punching in all different directions. (laughs) I was reading an interview of yours where you talked about how you really love Holly Herndon's music. But that sometimes you'll just avoid listening to uh, her new album or whatever it is because you get somehow intimidated and like a bit overwhelmed by it. And I find that really relatable. Um, Mm. I also do the same thing, especially with other interviewers. Um, So how do you balance those feelings of like intimidation and inspiration? Like can intimidation also sometimes be inspiring? Yeah, for me, they're two sides of the same coin. Um. Again, I solved that because I think that's a problem of overthinking. Mm. Because every time I put it on without a fail, I go, oh my God, this is so good. This bangs. I'm going to listen to this every day. <laughs> uh, and so and I, so I think, what was all this bullshit about? Oh, I can't listen to it yet. I'm not ready. Mm. Like, you know, I have to like sit in the middle of the living room by myself, like silently and then like get ready, get in the mood. And music always like breaks these neuroses for me. It's like it's just like a divine hammer that just comes and just like just breaks my neuroses down to the ground. No matter how ornamental and intricate and expertly engineered my neuroses may be, it's just like thwack and it's done. Um, so for me, intimidation is that part. This. Mm grotesque architecture that this like amazing architecture firm in my head built um with the latest technologies and 
music is this is just this primitive but like almighty uh cleanser of it and i i i am so grateful i have something like that mm. um i'm not even an anxious person so i get really <laughs> pissed off like um when these neuroses catch up with me mm. uh and music lets me feel i think i think the inspiration part is what gets me out of bed in the morning um i go to bed exhausted at the end of the day because due to the intimidation and the overthinking but i like sleep and then i wake up again thanks to the the opposite side of it um you've also talked about one of the ways that you deal with imposter syndrome and you said that in that similar sort of logical way um you've just kind of told yourself that it's not going away we all deal with it we've all had that conflict and it's just the way it is so you kind of have to stop fighting it mm so how difficult was that for you to kind of grapple with or or sort of get over in in whatever sense of the word? It just bothers me less frequently now. I'm not saying it went away cleanly and completely. It's just that let's say I felt imp- imposter syndrome. I used to feel it 7 days out of 7. And then now I feel it maybe like 1 day out of 7 but only for like 5 minutes or something. Sure. Um and and I think it's also letting go of ego because the question of imposter syndrome is very self-absorbed by nature. Mm. It's like, you know, the scale is of this one person. Is this one person, which is myself, an imposter? And I think in dance music especially, you're faced with what music does for people around you. And so when you see these like 200 smiling faces dancing... Or, you know, even 10 people messaging you online to say they liked your music. Im- letting imposter syndrome me- win means, like, shitting on all their faces and being like, fuck you, I suck. Like, mm. you know, how dare you enjoy my music, even though I'm an imposter. <laughs> and uh, I think that's just such a waste of energy and time. And I would rather be like, oh, you know what? I thought this wasn't good enough, but what do I care? You know, people are enjoying it. Um, and the more I play shows, with each radio show I air, with each thing I release, it all it becomes kind of like a like a proof, this file of evidence against this imposter syndrome accusation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why I have less and less the more I make music. Do you find that you're able to like easily tap into those moments? Like I read a story that you told about when you finally handed in uh, to end a siege. Mm-hmm. And you said that you were really upset about it because you thought it sounded terrible, but the label ended up loving it so much. And I wonder mm-hmm. how how it is for you to kind of bring back those moments in order to, I don't know, I guess like comfort yourself or like remind yourself about what you're actually doing and about your own talent. I honestly don't remember the last time I've had to confront myself. Mm. Like, I think for the past year or two, I've just been on, like, eternal God mode. Like, I don't doubt my own talent. And I love it when people don't doubt their own talent. (laughs) It's so refreshing to me. Um, So, no, I can't remember the last time I had to confront myself about music. Um, Because, like I said... With each show I play, I get a good reminder of that. And especially this Friday on sound, I was like, oh yeah, this is it. Like this mm-hmm. is this is how I live my life and I'm so happy about it. This whole idea of trusting trusting in other people's opinions is mm. something that I think has helped you um, throughout your whole career. 
Mm. Um, like I read, for example, that when you when you were first asked to do your first gig, you kind of didn't think you were ready, but your friends and your peers told you that you were, so you decided to go for it. So how important mm. is that trust and connection with others in terms of your mental health as an artist? It's very important. Being solitary is hard. It makes you spiral. Um, it sounds contradictory what I said about I don't care about what other people's music, like what what other people think of my music. And like, it's true. Like, I it really doesn't hurt me when people say like, oh, her music sucks. You know, like it just it just doesn't touch me at all because I think that's fine. I probably don't like the music you make either. And like, who are we to force each other to listen to things we don't like? I guess I would feel a little upset if an artist I really loved said, oh, I don't like her music. Because I think, oh, but I thought we had a common ground. Sure. Um, so there. on one hand, I'm saying, believe in your own vision and taste. Because that's what makes you an artist. Don't listen to other people grumbling about your music. Uh, at the same time, when people around you support you and your music, it's important to it's important to not negate their experience of your music. Mm. And for example, when I play a set on Boiler Room and the people in the comments say like my mixing sucks and stuff we don't really have a relationship outside of this one-way comment being thrown on my performance so that's okay but for example tt rob and gribs at tt they decided to release my music it reflects on them too so they have a personal professional musical investment in my music and what they want to put out of it um, and so that's why I respect their opinion. That's why I say, okay, I trust you when they say this is ready to be put out. Hmm. There's a big difference between, you know, this random dude from Hertfordshire commenting on my boiler room set and Robin Grips who come to my shows, listen to my tracks carefully, compliment me, you know, give me, um, assurance uh give me bandcamp download payouts like there's a big difference so that's how i that's how i explain this seemingly contradictory statements of don't listen to anybody else and listen to the people around you i think that's a really smart way of thinking about it and actually i'd never really thought about it that way before in the sense of like I often do the same this same thing that I just mentioned of like feeling like I'm no good and then when people give me compliments then I'm like you know telling them it's not true or whatever or thinking that it's not true mm. and I think that that's a really good point mm. about kind of invalidating people's opinions when their opinions are valuable. Yeah, and like I respect Grib's and Rob's taste. So for me to say oh, no, no, I don't agree. I think my music really is awful. I'm, like, insulting their mm. taste. And if I were to insult their taste, we wouldn't have a working relationship to begin with, so why would I do mm. that? That's how I, like, found holes in my supposedly bulletproof logic of, no, I suck, <laughs> like, everyone's everyone's stupid when they when they by liking my shitty music. And I was like, well, actually... Your argument is stupid as hell. <laughs> so yeah. I'm curious about what other ways trust is a part of your music making process. Um, something that you said in a past interview was that you'd actually adopted your artist name because you didn't want people to judge you based on anything other than your music. Like you just wanted them to have trust in the anonymity of the project. Mm -hmm. um, so how has that mm -hmm. impacted the kind of music you're able to make or put out there like do you think that it's made you more free or less anxious because it's just a persona and kind of like not it's kind of compartmentalized as like music you and regular you mm -hmm. oh yeah totally um, it made me freer I was very happy to have the first two three years of working in music with only Mm, closest people around me 
no, not really prioritizing new connections. Um, I think without those those formative years, I probably would have felt more uh, pressure to make music that was on trend or mm. I don't know, like put Asian elements in my music because that's what like apparently everyone wants me to do this or something um and um and like i said about experiment like i love experimental music for this reason it kind of is written that you should go against rules expectations whatever and that always gives me solace comfort freedom to do what i want to do mm. um and i think the music i make is niche enough that people who come to my shows um don't try to box me into what they want me to make they're very open-minded and that that has made my music making process so much more honest and fun and fulfilling than otherwise like I if it weren't for my listeners and my team being understanding of the fact that like I like a lot of different things and I'm going to try a lot of different things at different points in my life if it weren't for that I probably couldn't have released something like Grotto which is not a dance mm. album but it's not a pop album either like um and I think if I, I don't know, I think like putting your name to music and like living very openly, there's no boundary between the personal and the professional. That's, that's celebrity culture. Um, I'm the last person to become a celebrity. So, um, and I think I've managed to cement my status as such. The lady who makes weird music, and I'm very happy about that. <laughs> uh, you talked about this a bit briefly earlier, um, and how your music is not meant to be like a vehicle for your emotions or your sort of past experiences or traumas, whatever they may be. Does that also mm. help in terms of kind of keeping things fun and like protecting you a little bit in the way that you just mentioned? Oh, I don't think so because music. I'm I'm very honest to music. I don't do this like maintaining a little bit of a distance. I do this with like most people, but to music, I am, that's why I say music is kind of like a religion to me. Um, like it's, it's very private between us and I don't have to I don't have to be reserved or think about what I have to say. I feel like I am naked before God, that sort of feeling. Mm. Um, it's how, it's once the music leaves my laptop and goes out into the world that for me, this division between me, the artist, and me, the person becomes important because. You know, I don't want people to think, oh, this is her album about growing up in a dysfunctional family. Mm -hmm. Yes, I said it was a f like my upbringing was a factor in why I made this, but that can't be the end or be all of why I made Grotto what it is. Because, like I said, people have never understood my music in the way I understand me, my music, and that's fine. And if I told them, this is what this album is about. Um, here is my life story. This is my EP. They're exactly the same. Like, I'm not really interested in doing that. People can ascribe what they want. And also, I I don't want people to assume that they know me because they know my music. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's quite dangerous, like, how in our generation we feel very close to... Um, stars or artists that we can just tag them or send them a message and 
it it freaks me out a little bit when people think they know me mm. um because i'm glad i could do something for you through my music but trust me that's the best way that's the best thing i could give you i'm a lousy friend i'm uh, i'm like i'm a i'm a good wife but i'm very monogamous so like that's not up for grabs you know some things are better shared with your lover or your best friend than with like some lady who makes music <laughs> on the internet you know <laughs> and that's something i really want people to understand i run out of social energy very quickly and it's a nightmare for me when i play a gig and i think i've given everything i can give possibly in that set and i walk off stage and people grab me and they want to have conversations with me because they think they'll get something out of talking with me whether it's clout or musical or emotional knowledge or getting a guest slot on my rinse or whatever um and i think no the musician me is done like she's done for the night i'm just trying to get home and there is nothing i can give you so for me having this distinction of musician and not musician me like it's really sacred and i need people to respect it mm. and so how do you manage people's expectations in in that sense like is it just about keeping keeping the course staying the course and kind of doing what you're doing yeah i try to stay relatively sober I don't like playing under the influence anyway because if I sound worse because I'm under the influence then I'd feel really embarrassed like I I'm a bad professional and if I sound better under the influence then that's even worse <laughs> like what kind of a realization do I have to grapple with if that happens so I try to stay relatively sober so that like my boundaries I'm protecting my boundaries my wife also pointed out to me early on like i i kept coming back home exasperated like oh my god i got ca- caught in like cocaine chats and like this girl i never met before like wanted to touch me all over cuz she liked my dress and like and then she was like well you know you post a lot of stories where you talk um and like you interact with fans you don't know and maybe this gives people the impression that you're always down to socialize even though you're like never down to socialize you only post these stories in the moments where you're ready to socialize yeah. but like those are the rare moments but people think that's you on the default so quite early on i stopped posting or talking that much and it really did help it's scary how much it affected yeah. things it's also very important for me to have backstage space that i can be left alone in so i can go there to retreat anytime i need and you know i used to think like oh my god i'm being such a diva i'm so difficult uh but in the end it's just not really sustainable for me to be socializing all the time mm. every weekend it burns me out um so I always tell the promoters once I check into the tour I'm going to need a few hours alone. You know, please don't come pick me up like I really hate walking with people I don't know for some reason, you know. I will walk there myself like I'm sorry, like nothing personal. <laughs> so I try to communicate these things so there's like less damage for everyone. Hmm. I was going to ask you how how you maybe manage your own expectations of yourself, but it seems like you're quite comfortable in just asking for the things that you need which i think is a really big part of that yeah it is i mean i was just thinking about like the rampant drug use in our industry and how un- uncomfortable it makes me because i'm not like i'm not a very keen drug user and but sometimes i wish i was because i feel like i'm missing out mm. um i feel like i should stay up as late as everyone else otherwise i'm not fun mm. you know i should go to all the afters and then and and sometimes i really wish i could but i always come back to no you know what i'm glad i'm not like that i'm glad i go home at 1am mm. i 
Um, and I don't begrudge anyone for staying out later than me and having a good time without me. I'm happy to be in bed. I'm a low energy person. I think I'm healthy now and I, I am relatively very healthy, but like I also like have like chronic depression and have had it since I was a teenager. And I realized that this careful, healthy balance that I've built, it was, you know, grueling work that I've been working on for the past 15 years. It's a delicate balance. And imagine if I expected more of myself. So you have to stay up more. You have to go to more parties. You have to do more drugs. I think I would probably fall apart. And it's not worth it. So I just focus on the fact that like I'm I'm so happy right now in my life I never thought I would be I never thought I would be like glad to be alive but I am and I have felt glad to be alive for like the past three years or something and like and so that to me is proof that like I have a good level of expectation for myself that I can answer to um I mean what other proof do I need really mm-hmm. Is it getting easier as you get older and gain more more experience to stay focused on those things that are important to you? Yeah, man, I can't fucking stay up late anymore. <laughs> like, like I, I remember like drinking all night when I was seventeen, and sleeping on the half an hour school bus and going to school the next day. I think I would die if I did that right now. <laughs> Um, and like, I'm, I love food and I think once you get into cooking sooner or later, you're going to arrive at cooking with seasonal produce, (laughs) like healthy things. And like, once you get into this, like Gwyneth Paltrow mode of life, you just can't really go into hedonism as like with abandon, like, you know, in in case you wanted to and also I think it comes with like my self-worth being like reconstructed because I have self-worth now and that means I think no like I have value even though I might be a sleepy like provincial lesbian who's like approaching 60 on the inside (laughs) whereas like before I might think oh, I'm not really worthwhile unless I do these things people want me to do, which is stay out with them, like, you know, be this cool girl that people want me to be. So I think the older I get, the more I understand what I want out of life and how to give it to myself. And that means, like, bed at 2 2 a.m. latest. (laughs) And what about as an artist, what things are important to you these days? I just want to make music that nobody else can make. Because I think that's what gives it value. This is why I don't give feedback to anyone. People always ask me for feedback. And I'm like, I can't do that because I would only give feedback on what I would do with this this track. And... I don't know what you're going to do with this track and what you want to do. What if, like, you have this part of music, this track, like, let's say you really love this part. And what if I email back saying, you know, I love this part and this part, but this part sucks. Are you going to throw it away? No. So what's the point of the feedback? I think everyone can make their own music um, because we are all different. Whether everyone's is good or moving to me is irrelevant um, because I'm not going to spend my life listening to every single person's music on this earth. I don't have enough time for that, although I would like to, maybe. Um, so as an artist, it's just very important to me to make what I want to hear that I think only I can make. And also, I just want to be a decent person. I think that's a big part of being an artist, at least for me it is. Like, I know there are some great artists out there who are terrible people, but I don't want to be that, you know? I don't want to get 
a pass for being a terrible person just because I make good art. So, so that's something I try to keep in mind. You've been listening to Object Blue for Air Podcast, episode 39. We'll be back on the last Wednesday of every month, so check back in November for another episode. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at at underscore air podcast, or subscribe with our Patreon at patreon.com slash air podcast. If you're enjoying air and you want to hear more stories like these ones, check out Bear Radio, Berlin's English-speaking podcast network. Air is produced in partnership with Bear Radio, which is home to 24 other podcasts and dozens of episodes for you to enjoy. So head to bearradio.org to listen. Thanks for tuning in this month, and see you next time.